Hello and welcome to Alternative Fund Insight, exploring trends in hedge funds and private markets. Joining me this week, I am pleased to welcome Patrick Garley, Managing Director at hedge fund advisory firm Sussex Partners. He gives his take on the debate over hedge fund performance this year and provides an insight into institutional investor sentiment towards the sector. But first, the debate over Dubai as an emerging hedge fund hub has been in the headlines this year. AFI spoke to Ludovica Brinola, a financial journalist based in Istanbul, who has reported on hedge funds in London, the Middle East and beyond, to explore the factors driving this trend. Ludovica, there is a lot of talk about Dubai emerging as the next big hedge fund hub. Is this truly the case, or is it just a good client and business development hub, given all the oil-rich sovereign wealth funds in the region? Hi, Will. Yes, really, really interesting question. We've heard a lot about it. And to start off, I would agree. I mean, if I were to put myself in a portfolio manager's shoes, in a hedge fund CEO's shoes, I would definitely look at Dubai as a potential destination. The pandemic has essentially shown that relocating and working from remote as well is not only possible, in some cases even advisable. I mean, it's a tax haven, which means there is no income tax. There was no corporate tax. There will be uh, starting from mid-2023, but it will only be 9%, which is still extremely favourable when compared to uh, Europe, the US, the UK. And again, Will, a lot of companies have opened bureaus in Dubai to better service uh, the, the Gulf countries, the Middle East, the North Africa from there. And keep in mind, these countries, these regions is, is undoubtedly developing very fast. Population is booming unlike many countries in Europe, so certainly a very important region. And not only alternative finance um, sector is, is, is looking um, at Dubai. We, we have banks um, opening bureaus there. We have news outlets, even broadcasters increasingly. Uh, so not only finance. In, in a way, it's the best of both worlds. I mean, yes, it's in a desert. Yes, it's a good time zone to trade Asia, to trade Europe. It's exotic, but it's developed world enough for Europeans to understand uh, the business environment, to do business there. What are some of the negative factors for Dubai? Obviously, it's a very different cultural environment. It's hot, maybe too hot. It's a long way from home for a lot of these managers who are moving there from uh, Europe or the US, so it might not be a permanent thing. So, Will, after speaking to some of the portfolio managers that tried to open um, a hedge fund there from scratch, uh, tried moving there and speaking to some uh, sovereign wealth funds portfolio manager as well, well, their answers seem to lie in the fact that it's, it is not only about the location and the perks associated with a specific location, but it is often about the environment, the talent and the network that you can or cannot find in a specific city or region. And, and so, you know, it's not only a portfolio manager moving, it would be his family moving, his children moving, and the fact that there isn't a lot of network, there isn't a history of hedge funds there, there's therefore a lack of talent. Um, isn't really helping the culture as well. It's still very different than the culture that you find in the UK or Europe. And again, 
when you think about a hedge fund opening a bureau in in Dubai, it's not only a hedge fund opening; it's it's the, the whole ecosystem that needs to be there. So the prime brokers on one end, uh, hedge fund services such as uh, audit and custody. So the, the, the ecosystem in terms of uh, recruitment, the service provider network, from a personal perspective. If you have a family, then the school situation is going to be very different from what you would find in New York. And what about from an infrastructure perspective too? I mean, are hedge funds able to do everything they want to do trading from Dubai? Right, that's an interesting question, right? Because um, while uh, the UAE has been developing uh, this DIFC as a market uh, authority that's it's claimed to be entirely modelled on the London FCA and not by chance, obviously, because they really wanted to attract as much uh, as many European firms and UK firms as they could, um, and basically the DIFC is a a more common law based system rather than the more bureaucracy heavy civil law system that we find in. In, in continental Europe. So it, it seems to be advantageous. But at the same time, some portfolio managers actually told me, well, in, in, in case of a litigation that were to ensue, it, it wouldn't be as easy to deal uh, with with lawyers in the region than it would be for, for, for European portfolio managers or CEOs to deal with it in Europe. Um, that is yes, that is one factor. And short selling too. Exactly. Short, short selling was actually, it was banned. Um, uh, until a few years ago. Now it's allowed. But again, when you speak to some of the prime brokers, and again, off the records, what they tell you is is that, yes, shorting is allowed, but it's kind of frowned upon still now in the culture. Globally, there's been a lot of change. You know, during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about uh, Miami as an emerging hedge fund hub, as people were uh, moving down there from New York. Hong Kong and Singapore, they have very high COVID restrictions as well. So some managers might be wanting to move to Dubai from these cities as well, and not just from London or from from Europe. We're looking here at alternatives to New York and London, essentially. And it's not just Dubai who are keen to attract that talent. Right. And one thing to mention, really, that's a very important factor, a bit of the elephant in the room here, is that uh, the Dubai region, the Gulf countries, have these giant sovereign wealth funds as well that are very important hedge fund allocators um, and the, these, these giant funds lost a lot of money during the pandemic now they've recouped essentially all they had lost um, and this money is essentially essentially budgetary surplus that comes from excess oil reserves and that they've been gaining because this year oil and gas prices have been soaring uh, making these funds richer and richer that's very important because they're very substantial hedge fund allocators i mean these funds will have around 700 billion dollars uh, each in assets under management. So, so when they allocate to a hedge fund, they do so through very big tickets. They wouldn't normally allocate less than, say, $100 million uh, per hedge fund. Um, the, the, thing, the problem is that in the last few years, several sovereign wealth funds, portfolio managers have, have told me uh, that, they, yes, they were increasingly looking at quantitative hedge funds rather than discretionary, mid-sized funds in order to have more negotiating power, but what seems to be happening right now is that instead of allocating to external quant funds, they are rather hiring CIOs from outside to open internal, um, let's say, quant sleeves in a way. It would be less costly, no 20 feet to pay, possibly easier to oversee returns and strategy. Final question for you. Um, you're a financial journalist based in Istanbul. You've covered the hedge fund industry for many years. What's the hedge fund industry like in Turkey? Is it, is it, is it 
big? Are there opportunities? Right. Well, we're not really in Turkey. I wouldn't say there is a hedge fund industry as such. It's not a very favourable tax environment in the first place. There's no history of hedge funds in the country. Shorting as well, similarly to the UAE, wasn't allowed until recently. I think it was 2020. Um, But even now, it's still very limited, and hence this limits hedge fund activity. On the other hand, though, there are private equity funds, and, and, and especially there is venture capital which is rising right now, interestingly, because the startup environment is quite strong at the moment, especially in Turkey, but especially in Istanbul. Um, and the government has been very active in the space. Uh, it's been a strong supporter of the whole startup ecosystem. So there's, there's a lot of dry powder actually available now for investment in Turkish startups. You may have heard of uh, the grocery delivery apps, gaming startups becoming famous from unicorns to uh, IPO. Uh, and, and again, there's a new regulatory framework now for venture capital investment funds um, that's now encouraged these funds to establish their headquarters in Turkey rather than in the Netherlands or Luxembourg, like it was happening uh, until recently. So no hedge fund industry really, but certainly interesting opportunities when it comes to venture capital. Great. Ludovica, thank you so much for joining me today. Your piece on Dubai got a lot of interest. And uh, we will be in touch on the podcast again soon. Pleasure, Will. Thanks for having me. The debate over hedge fund performance this year is raging. The 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds has had its worst period in almost a century, but hedge funds are also down, and some investors are not happy. I was pleased to discuss all this and more with Patrick Garley, who has tracked the hedge fund industry for more than two decades and advises investors on their allocations. What are they saying to him? Okay, Patrick Garley, thank you very much for speaking to me today. You spend a lot of your time speaking to investors. What are they making of hedge fund returns this year? Yeah, so thank you, Will, for having me. Um, This is an interesting year. If you read the press, you get the sense sometimes that it's a bad year, but actually I would say it's a pretty good year for hedge funds. I mean, you have to look at it on a sort of broad basis and, and sort of differentiated basis. But, you know, whilst you have some strategies that have suffered, like long short, there's plenty of other managers that have actually had a very, very good year and have um, proven you know, their worth and, and, and shown why you need that sort of diversification in portfolios. So you know, in an environment like this, we typically try to avoid uh, long-short strategies. And, and US long-short in particular has been a strategy that we haven't been keen on for a very long time because it's a very crowded market. It's a very efficient market. You have a lot of very smart people chasing the same ideas. You have crowded trades. You hear the sort of same complaints from people over and over. But if you go further afield and you look either at different geographies or different types of strategies, more diversifying strategies, the managers have done well. CTAs have done well, commodity managers have done well, uh, and plenty of other managers have done well. So, you know, from an investor standpoint, we see more interest this year than we have in a while because people are looking for that diversification in their portfolios and hedge funds have been able to offer that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you've created this sort of well-curated portfolio. So CTA, macro, commodities perform very well. That said, long-short equity is the biggest strategy in the industry. 
This is against the backdrop of a truly terrible, historically bad year for the 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. Should long short not have performed better? I think long short probably should have performed better. I think a lot of long short managers are not great at managing their risk in this type of environment. Of environment, you know, they're not very good at volatility adjusting their positions. It seems like, so, you know, to us, long short is something that if you have a risk on market, you can look at. But the issue there often is as well that you don't take enough of the upside for the fees that you pay. So I think it's a tricky, uh, a tricky strategy. You know, when we do long short, we look at geographic markets like China, Japan, and there it's it's working. So you know, for example, we do a annual survey of Japanese hedge funds, and as part of that, we compare the returns of Japanese long short managers, uh, European long short managers, and U.S. long short managers versus their benchmarks historically. Uh, and what we try and ascertain is if they've added any value or if they actually detracted value mm -hmm. for investors. And what we found consistently is U.S. managers have been destroying performance, so really doesn't make any sense uh, as a group. European managers have done okay and have done better in the last couple of years. Mm. Again, we haven't run the numbers for this year yet. And Japanese managers have consistently created a huge amount of alpha. So that shows you that if you have a market which is inefficient, those strategies make sense. Mm -hmm. But if you have a very, very efficient capital market with lots of capital chasing the same ideas, it's very, very difficult. And I think you see it this year as well, you know, some of the big casualties, if you see what they were invested in, mm. you know, it's very disappointing. So the institutional investors that you speak to, what is their mood at the moment? Are they looking to increase their exposure to alternatives? And are they a little bit too late to do that? Or is this a situation that, that could run, you know, this very muted slash negative market environment? Yeah. Look, so it's difficult to generalize because different institutions have different um, return targets and different requirements. So we definitely see an increase in interest and people are looking for diversifying strategies something that is uncorrelated, that creates some uh, different types of return streams and some stability in their portfolios. I certainly don't get the sense from the conversations that we have that there's less interest, there's more interest uh, is what we're seeing. So they're looking for that active management after years of... Yes, active is back. If you had a passive exposure, you did pretty well and you didn't, it yeah. was pretty cheap actually. Yeah. Whereas now that active approach is more important. Absolutely, and I don't think that this is a short-term issue. As you've uh, made the point earlier, you know, 60-40 is having a very tough time right now. And it's not the first time, by the way. There have been other historical periods where 60-40 hasn't worked. So we definitely get the sense that this is an ongoing trend and you will see more and more assets going into private strategies, you know, whether that's hedge funds, whether that's lending, private equity. Uh, so that I think that's a long-term shift in, in people's asset allocation. And moving into privates, obviously at the moment it provides a shield against the volatility of public markets, but could there be a lag? Could that just be storing up problems for the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things people are going to be looking at very carefully is private equity and how the valuations stack up there, because in many ways private equity is nothing more than leveraged public equities. And so you would expect there to be some significant losses in some of the portfolios. Uh, and, you know, that's something to watch. I mean, we have some multi-asset portfolios that we use for clients which have private equity in it. And 
we're looking very closely at how those positions are going to get valued. I think that's important. Um, so private equity might have a tougher time going forward. You know, on the private credit side, you know, very, very broad. There's a lot of different strategies. There's, there's firms who are doing a terrific job. And there's others which have come into the market because a lot of capital went into it. Uh, and where, you know, it's questionable how their valuation methodologies work and whether their underwriting standards could withstand a recession, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to sort of generalize. And, you know, obviously a lot of money's gone into those strategies over the last few years, which, you know, sometimes is also worrying, especially if it goes to, to newer firms that maybe don't have the background that you might be looking for. But I don't think that's going to change either. I think, you know, with the regulation the way it is, the disintermediation of banks, all of that's going to continue. So those markets are just going to get bigger and bigger. And what is the key from a macroeconomic hedge fund perspective? What are the calls that they need to get right over the next 24, 36 months? Yeah, look, I think the, the big themes are really inflation and rates. Those are the main themes. That, that's what everybody's talking about and trying to figure that out. You know, are, are rates going to go as high as people think they will? Are we going to have a recession? You know, there's a lot of pundits that say there's not going to be a recession. I think we're a little bit more bearish and we think that there will be a recession. Um, you know, does that mean that because the economy is going to slow down that rates are not going to go up as high as people expect them to go? I, that, that's the big one. And that's clearly driven a bit of an increase in the last few weeks, which a lot of people are saying is a bear market rally. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think it's a bear market rally, but then, you know, I'm not a macroeconomist. Um, but it kind of feels like that. I mean, just from a common sense standpoint, if you walk down the street and you sort of look at consumer behavior, you look at discounts that are being offered, for example, at the moment, you look at what energy uh, bills are going to look like, uh, you look at the real estate market, which could also crack if interest rates go up high enough. It's difficult for me to see how this is a positive environment, but um, you know, time will tell. Do you think there's a big difference between the US and Europe? given the US has energy security, they might be able to navigate the coming months in a way that Europe struggles to. I think it's going to help, but I'm still not sure that the US is going to be able to avoid a recession because of it. Mm -hmm. But certainly helpful. Yeah. I mean, you know, even in Switzerland, we have conversations now or discussions uh, about potential blackouts in winter and not being able to heat our houses. I mean, Switzerland, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't expect that. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't remember those conversations ever having taken place. Let's move on to ESG and sustainable investing. Um, you've been a proponent of those things. You've described sustainable investing as a long-term mega trend, but it's taken a big knock this year, hasn't it, in the wake of events with Russia and Ukraine, the commodity shock, inflation. So look, longer term, I'm still of the opinion that we're probably going to stop talking about ESG because it's just going to become integrated in, into an investment process. I think at some point we're going to be at a, at a point where everybody's going to have to think about that when they invest because it's also a risk management issue. And you may not have that differentiation anymore, which is a start today um, in, you know, in the future. Um, you know, ESG, as I said, I think there's multiple elements to it. So. You might take the view that there's no climate change and everything's fine and nothing's happening, but you still need to think about it from a risk management standpoint because if there's going to be changes in government policy, 
your assets might not be worth as much as you thought they, they would be, right? If you're in, in, invested in fossil fuels and you're unable to extract the reserves, then you know that company's not going to be worth very much. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I think you need to look at it. Um, and then as you put it, there's a huge opportunity because of the amount of capital that's being thrown at energy transition and you know ESG in general. So that's also not going to go away. I mean, global governments have made it very clear and have telegraphed that they're going to spend a lot of money, they're going to change rules, they want to do this. And, you know, so you have to somehow participate in that. I think what's happened this year, that's less ESG and more cheap money and sort of exuberance, irrational exuberance and just misallocation of capital. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we're trying to look at from the hedge fund standpoint is how can you take advantage or how can you participate rather in ESG from a hedge fund standpoint? And that's really not having beta in your portfolio and that's sort of where we're struggling right now when we look there at There is a it. lack of agreed standards as well, isn't that? That's a huge problem, yeah, because if you want to put together a portfolio, how do you aggregate the ratings, for example, you know, pretty much impossible at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, how can you make sure you're not being accused of greenwashing because just relying on the fact that a fund is Article 8 or 9 may not be enough, um, you know, that doesn't really mean anything at the moment or not enough. I mean, you should be able to rely on that, but you can't. Um, so yeah, that definitely makes it tricky. But the other issue is a lot of the product out there at the moment is very sort of high beta, high growth. Um, and what's lacking right now, what we would like to see is more, again, diversifying type strategies that are uncorrelated, maybe trading assets that you don't have in, in the rest of your book, you know, it could be carbon trading or something else. And I think that'd be really interesting because it's difficult for a hedge fund to represent that they're going to be an impact investor and it's definitely going to be difficult for a usage fund which is daily liquidity to try and represent that they're an impact investor they, they can't be it's not possible if you want that mm -hmm. you need to go into longer lockup private equity where you can have those sort of uh, alignments of interest and outcomes but so at the moment a lot of the esg style hedge fund strategies you see do present that beta risk yeah. and will have lost a lot of money this yeah. year. Yeah, and that's a problem. So, you know, we looked at putting together portfolios, for example, of USITS ESG managers. And um, I think we're close to getting to a point where, where we have something that makes sense. But for us, the beginning of this year was a great test because a lot of these managers have lost so much money that you might as well just buy an ETF. And that's not the idea of buying a hedge fund. You know, at that point... That's not risk management. No, at that point, yeah, the value is not there. You don't need that. So I think that's still the challenge. So hedge fund ESG, I think interesting. I think what we're seeing is managers are not really pretending even to, to have some sort of an impact, but it's more sort of ESG informed or ESG related in a sense that opportunities arise because capital is being invested in these strategies. You can follow the capital flows. There's going to be misallocations of capital as well. There's opportunities to short companies where you think there might be a regulatory change, maybe there's an activist stance you can take. You know, at the margin, there are certain assets which you would think are sort of ESG native, like carbon trading, which are different and should behave hopefully differently from the rest of your portfolio, which are interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we're thinking about ESG in a hedge fund context right now. At the moment, is it enough for investors if they are interested in ESG strategies, but they don't see the hedge fund strategies actually having an impact, making a difference. 
I have to be honest, in terms of investor demand, there isn't that much. You know, we're thinking about it um, because we're thinking as a fiduciary, what you need to think about, where are the trends? And we're also thinking about it because, as I said before, there's so much money going into it, which creates opportunities. Mm -hmm. And there's this risk element as well. So, do you think that, that demand has actually declined this year? I'm not sure if it's declined, but I think for a lot of investors it's sort of interesting, but not a must-have. Secondary to the, the bottom line, ultimately. Yeah. Let's turn to one of your specialist topics, which is Japan. You're going tomorrow on your first research trip since before the pandemic. What is the hedge fund market like in Japan? What is the opportunity set there? So look, it's a very small hedge fund market, it always has been. So by our estimation, you have somewhere between 80 and 120 managers, which is not very many. You have a few quite you know, reasonably large ones, a billion plus, which you know, by US standards would be small, but for Japan it's quite big. Why is that? Why has the, the Japanese industry not got bigger? Well, I think a couple of problems. So there's definitely a cultural element. A lot of them don't speak English or don't speak English well. They don't market themselves very well. Um, it's very hard to get information on them. You know, you have to really do the groundwork and go there and visit them and, and build a network. Um, so finding them is not, not that easy. The, the large ones tend to be closed. Um, you have a lot of very small managers which would never make it through institutional due diligence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you have a small amount sort of in the middle which are open large-ish enough for people to look at, um, but there, there's not that many and they're also spread, you know, you've got some in Singapore, you've got some in Tokyo, so it's, it's, not, it's not super easy to conduct research on them either. So it's a small market, but what makes it interesting? That's what makes it interesting, <laughs> that it's a small market, because what you end up with is a, you know, a dearth of capital chasing ideas, so it's the opposite of the US, where you have tons of managers, tons of capital, in Japan, it's a tiny amount of capital in a very large capital market, which is liquid, which you can easily short. Mm -hmm. It's a market which has you know, thousands of equities, very little primary research from investment banks. Um, so people do their own fundamental research and can get a real edge through that, which is difficult in other markets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in order to grow, presumably, it needs to access the capital from the main um, hedge fund investor markets, you know, US institutional, Middle East, sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, they, which is very difficult for them. But, you know, a lot of the managers also close their funds at small AUM levels. So it's not unusual that you meet a manager where his own capital is still sort of the main part of the fund. And they'll shut the fund at 300 million. And they're very happy with that. And the return on their money is more important to them than the management fees, which is great. That's what you want as an investor. Mm -hmm. um, but that also makes it tricky. Well, let's stay on the topic of smaller managers more generally. It seems that investors are looking for scale. They want to access the big, often multi-strategy managers who have tens of billions under management. They may see them as a safer bet. What is the market like for small emerging hedge funds? Look, just to go back to your point about the larger managers, I think there's a couple of reasons people do it. And, and there was some data that came out last week which showed that the funds that charge the highest fees are doing the best. Yeah, that was a study by Barclays. Yeah, and it basically showed that the multi-strats are doing really well. And the reason was that they can attract the best talent. So 
there's definitely something to be said about having big budgets and being able to buy great data and great teams. You know, that's, that's definitely helpful. I think the problem with some of these very large managers is that uh, the terms that they're now asking investors to accept are somewhat egregious. I mean, locking up your money for five years. You know, I had this conversation yesterday with a, with a peer uh, in a big pension fund and he agreed he wouldn't do that. He wants some flexibility. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in five years. This isn't private equity. This is different. But I understand why people are doing it. And there's also the safety of a brand name and the headline risk, you know, which is reduced. You know, small managers, it's always been tough for small managers, I think. Um, because from an institutional standpoint, until you reach a certain track record and size, you're not going to pass sort of the due diligence and requirements that they have. And I think that that hasn't gotten easier. So you need to be able to offer investors something which is different, either because you're creating capacity and strategy that is capacity constrained over everybody else's shot. So for example, um, you know, Asian multi-strat. Mm -hmm. There's very few Asian multi-strats that currently accept capital. So if someone were to launch a credible Asian multi-strat, people would be very interested in looking at that because people would like that sort of exposure and there's no money that they can deploy. Mm -hmm. um, or you need to have a niche where you have a certain expertise which someone else doesn't have, and there's a real opportunity to make money in that particular strategy. I think then you're going to do well. If you're going to try and launch another US long short fund, you're going to struggle mm -hmm. because there's so much competition. And you know, why, why would someone take the startup risk? And you know, that's the big issue. Oftentimes you end up having to take some sort of almost venture capital risk, but you don't get compensated for that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the challenge. Your point about the longer lockup periods that some of the larger multi-strat firms are demanding ties into an issue that was raised during the Man Group results this week. Uh, investors may be pulling cash out because there is the liquidity in the hedge fund markets that isn't there in private markets. So do you think we might see more of, more of those steps being taken now? It could be. I mean, we saw this in 08. In 08, there were plenty of managers that made money that were up handsomely for the year and lost half of their half of their AUM because they were used as an ATM. So that can absolutely happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in terms of the rest of the year, what are your main focus points? It pays to continue to be cautious for now. So our focus is going to be on diversifying strategies for the rest of the year. I don't think we're going to... There will be a point at which you probably want to go um, and put more beta into your portfolios, but we don't think that's the case yet. Having said that, I think we're starting to look at those sort of managers to line them up to be ready for when we think it's the right time. But for the time being, I think the focus will remain on diversifying strategies, so macro, CTA, rates trading, um, multi-strat, market neutral equities, those sort, of, those sort of strategies. Great. Well, Patrick, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you to Patrick Garley for some fascinating insights. You can read my five takeaways on the AFI website. And to Ludovica Brunola for joining me this time on AFI. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or review. And don't forget to sign up to the free AFI newsletter on alternativefundinsight.com. Please also follow AFI on LinkedIn to hear all about future interviews and analysis. See you next time.